Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined today by Josh Norris to break down the Yankees system. Josh, the Yankees won 103 games this season, their first division title since 2012. Obviously, they fell short of their goal of the World Series. They fell in the ALCS to the Astros. We've seen the Yankees in recent years really produce a lot of really, really talented homegrown players. Luis Severino, Gary Sanchez, Miguel Andahar. Glaber Torres was acquired to trade. However, he was still a member of the Yankees' farm system. Uh, those were all international players. Aaron Judge was a homegrown draft. We've seen the Yankees' farm system rankings fall a little bit, but it's for the right reasons. They've graduated a tremendous amount of homegrown talent. They've traded other prospects to get standout everyday players like Giancarlo Stanton. When you look at the Yankees right now, the combination of where they are at the major league level as well as where they are with their farm system, what do the next few years hold for you? Well, their farm system in particular is is so volatile in the way that it, it, it could go. When I go through the book and I put my you know BA grades on guys, I feel like I'm putting 50 extreme on so many different players because of either injuries or youth or a combination of both. The, the, the hallmark of this system, in my eyes, is upside. Like, there are so many guys who could be who could have really high ceilings, but also have really low floors. Uh, there's not a whole. I mean, uh, Jason Dominguez at the top of the Yankee system has a humongous ceiling, uh, pretty low, pretty high floor too. But it's hard to say for a 16-year-old. Uh, Luis Medina, who checks in at number seven, is probably the highest upside pitcher in their organization. Uh, all three of his pitches are either a six to an eight, depending on you know when you see them. Uh, but his floor is tremendously low as well. And even beyond the top ten, you guys got, got guys like Kevin Alcantara, Oz, uh, Alex Vargas, uh, Antonio Gomez. Those guys are all just babies who were in the GCL this year. Rainford Salinas is another who could all pop, but they could all wash out fairly easily as well. So. In five years, if we look back at this system, it's going to be, I, I think you could go, you had a, a tremendous system, one of the best in the game, and you didn't know it, or it could be a tremendous flop. And there's really not, there's not a whole lot of players that have a real middle ground right now that we see. A lot of the names you mentioned were players who were signed internationally. Uh, when you look at the Yankees' top 10 as a whole, uh, you have two players who are domestic draftees eight players who were international signees, some of whom were signed by the Yankees, others who were acquired in trades. But we've seen the Yankees really struggle to produce big leaguers out of the draft in recent years. Obviously, Aaron Judge was a huge, huge hit. But in the years before that and the years after that, it's been rough going. Their most recent first-round pick, Anthony Siegler, did not debut to very good reviews this past season. When you look at the construction of the Yankees' farm system, how much would you say is it slanted toward international players? Oh, it's an extraordinarily international system right now. Uh, I think the way I have the 30 right now, there are 17 international players in the top 30, and that's just the guys they signed. You know, guys like Luis Heel and uh, Albert Abreu don't count toward that total, but they are international, but they are also trade pieces. But, I mean, they've signed a tremendous amount of international talent over the last few years. And a lot of it is starting to pop. Um, you know, they've, they've they've had some good draft guys. They've just traded them. There have been 
you know, guys like Zach Littell, who was a, was a trade guy. Well, he was also a, a Mariner, I believe, originally. Yes. Uh, Josh Rogers was a trade piece uh, that they they dealt. Um, Cody Carroll, the same way. These guys are none of them have been you know particular stars, but they have been uh, drafted drafted and then traded uh, away. But they uh, so a lot of the guys, the fruits of their draft aren't necessarily showing up uh, in their system. Guy like Blake Rutherford was used to get Tommy Canley and David Robertson and Todd Frazier. Uh, James Caprillion was used to get Sonny Gray, who didn't work out really well, but you know he was used to get him regardless. So those, some of their draftees are attractive in trade, and that's still part of the battle. Absolutely, and a lot of times, even if the player you draft doesn't become a big league star, if you do get someone who's an impact player in a trade, a lot of times that can be every bit as good. Moving into this system, you touched on Jason Dominguez earlier. He was the number one prospect in this year's international class, landed a signing bonus north of $5 million, immediately becomes the Yankees' number one prospect. How much of a slam dunk was Dominguez to be the Yankees' number one prospect, and what can Yankees fans expect from him, even though he's only 16? I mean, it was a slam dunk. It really wasn't a hard choice. Once you talk to our international guy, Ben Badler, and some guys around their system, this guy has you know a ceiling that is i it's just well let's quote michael jordan here the ceiling is the roof for this guy he's got plus or better tools across the board he could be an absolute superstar that said he's 16 years old um and a lot of guys have a lot of big tools but you know his there are a lot of evaluators convicted that he's you know got star superstar potential and i'm sure you'll we'll see him on the top 100 uh, when it drops in February as well. So it wasn't really a hard call to put Dominguez at the top. You mentioned the plus tools across the board, but you also made the point of you have to see how it plays. You know, we focus so much on tools and raw skills and raw attributes, but so much of success in the upper levels and in the major leagues is having a good approach, picking your spots, knowing who you are as a hitter, being controlled on defense. How is he in terms of some of the supplementary aspects that a lot of times are what kind of separates raw tools guys and the actual impact big leaguers? I think one of the things that could speak to that, obviously he hasn't played an official game in the in pro ball yet, is that when you know you saw him or when when uh, scouts saw him, he was doing it against more advanced guys. They would have to bring in, if I remember correctly, like more advanced guys to pitch to him in tryouts, and he would still you know demolish them. So it's really, really hard to kind of put a, a tangible adjective on w- w- how he's going to fare against more advanced guys in the States and as they move up the ladder, but the initial signs are good. I mean, if, if I could tell you exactly how he'd fare against double A AA and triple A arms, I'd be in a different job. <laughs> you know? Being able to predict the future would be very lucrative in other aspects. With Dominguez uh, and the Yankees' future lineup for 2023, we did throw him in there as the Yankees' center fielder by then. And part of the thinking behind that was we have seen the superstars uh, that were signed internationally, even though they're 16, get to the big leagues by age 20. The Ronald Acuna's of the world, the Fernando Tatis Jr.'s of the world, the Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s of the world. Is that Juan Soto's of the world. Is this that type of player? I think he could be. I mean, it's it certainly seems to be a never-ending pipeline of guys like that who just immediately pop into stardom, and I think there's a chance here. Um, we'll see. I mean, we'll, we will see once he you know makes his debut. I'm sure he'll come stateside for the GCL. Um, 
come 2020 and then he'll tell you or he'll tell us you know how quickly he's he's uh he needs to move i wouldn't be surprised if they move him quickly just because he got the largest signing bonus they've ever given to an international amateur so they obviously are betting a lot on those tools but he could be one but again there's so much it is 16 he's 16 years old there's a lot of ways to go for him to get to that ceiling and I feel like one thing that gives you faith and confidence is the job that Donnie Rowland and the Yankees international staff have done. We talked about earlier, guys like Gary Sanchez, guys like Luis Severino, they've continually found impact big leaders, signed them internationally at 16, 17, 18. Miguel Andahar is another. I think given that track record, you probably feel a little better about Dominguez becoming the type of player he's purported to be, just given what the Yankees have done with other international standouts. I think there's a wrinkle to be looked at there, and that is over the last year or two, the Yankees have undertaken a overhaul of the way they develop players. Um, and they brought in a new hitting coordinator this year, Dylan Lawson. They're bringing in all sorts of new minor league coaches and and uh, coordinators to change the way they develop players, especially, I mean, the pitching side too. They brought in Sam Breen from Driveline. And they're bringing in, you know, every, I feel like every other day you'll see some, uh, a college coach say, you know, I just got hired by the Yankees as a hitting instructor or a minor league manager or what have you. So they are looking to develop players a little differently than they had when Sanchez and Andujar and Severino were coming up. There's a, there's a heavily, uh, there, there's a, a blend of analytics um, and, you know, uh, old school coaching in there, but it's starting to shift toward you know, young guys who really have a handle on the way analytics and technology work these days. So that'll be really interesting to see how that plays uh, going forth. Absolutely. I definitely think that is going to be one of the more interesting subplots of the Yankees and minor league affiliates in 2020, along with Dominguez's development. Number two, three was an interesting discussion. Davey Garcia vaulted onto the top 100 this year, got all the way up to AAA, started and pitched very, very well in the Futures game. But Clark Schmidt got the number two spot on the Yankee system over him. I know you kind of went back and forth on this, talked to a number of different coordinators, evaluators, both inside and outside the Yankee system. What was it that ultimately put Schmidt over Davey Garcia in terms of the Yankees' top prospects? I think in my chat I said it was kind of a 2A, 2B type scenario, but Schmidt's body uh, is a little uh, lends itself a little bit more toward a starter's role than than does uh, Garcia. He Garcia is not thick like a Luis Severino or a Marcus Stroman. He's he's a he's a skinnier, smaller guy. He's not a big boy. He's, I don't believe he's pitched more than 100 innings in a season yet. Granted, neither has Schmidt, but he's coming off TJ. But his body, Schmidt, that is, is designed to handle a starter's workload. And I think we'll start to see that uh, again this year. Once he, he'll probably go back to double A and start triple and move to triple A by, by season's end. But he has all the ingredients and the characteristics of a starter. He's proved it in the SEC as a collegian. Um, so it was really close, but I went with the guy who I think's body could hold up longer. In, um, in a rotation setting that over Garcia, who might have a little more trouble uh, doing so over the course of a you know, 150, 200 inning season. 
Yeah, Schmidt had an excellent season this year, got up to double A, went six and five, the three four seven ERA, struck out 102 batters over 90 innings. As you mentioned, he's a Tommy John survivor, still has some innings to build up. But in terms of really the first year where he was really turned loose since Tommy John, it was a promising showing. Yeah, I mean, he started the year going, you know, mano a mano with Casey Mize in the Florida State League. Um, and I, you know, I think he went five innings, one hit, 10 punch outs or something. And then ended it uh, going mano a mano with Spencer Howard in the Eastern League playoffs. So he's been he's been through all sorts of pressure situations and cool matchups and things like that. And you know, to say nothing of again what he did in the SEC and the the character or the caliber of guys he faced in that league. But I just think he's got more starter traits, more slam dunk starter traits than Davey Garcia at this point. Um, and to be fair, Davey did get to AAA. But, you know, he started to show that he has command uh, to iron out in AAA. Um, they added a slider this year with Garcia, which kind of goes to the idea that his curveball wasn't going to be enough. Granted, that slider was really good, but that curveball wasn't a pitch that, although it was a high-spin curveball, it wasn't a pitch that got a whole lot of swings and misses uh, when he got to the upper level. So they started tinkering with him a little bit, um, whereas Schmidt's arsenal is pretty darn good especially this far out from tj so schmidt with the body with the arsenal that was what put him over the top garcia did last day decision like it was maybe i think i spent the last 48 hours kind of going back and forth on those two which was a uh less of a headache than the four charleston arms but there were that those were the that particular matchup cause problems in and of itself. Yeah, Davey Garcia did get to 100 innings this year through 111 innings. We mentioned vaulted all the way from high class A to AAA, started in the futures game, looked good there. It was interesting because you talked about that starter reliever debate. I had some evaluators say they did think he could start. You had some who were questioning it a little bit more. What would you say the percentage split is right now, whether he starts or relieves down the road? Oh, I think it's 50-50. I mean, it's really... It's really going to depend, like I've said before, on that body. It's just whether or not that body can hold up over that the course of a, of a major league season. And I just don't know. He's not he's not getting any bigger. There's not a whole lot of projection left on that body that that I've you know that evaluators have talked about. So it's kind of a what you see is what you get right now. What you get is pretty good, but it has to last. It has to be durable enough to go a major league starters workload, which is getting shorter if you're, especially if you're uh, in the Yankee system where you can go five innings and be backed up by the likes of Zach Britton and uh, Dylan Batantis and Adam Adovino and Aroldis Chapman and all those guys. But, you know, there's still a little more polish and durability to be added uh, for Garcia. There's more boxes to be checked on him right now. It's like I said, it's one A, one B with those two guys. Safe to say this is the top tier of the Yankee system, these top three. Once you move into four, five, six, topped by uh, Luis Gill, was there any debate for Gill, Oswald Peraza, Anthony Volpe in the top three, or was it a clear separation? Oh, clear, clear separation. I wasn't I wasn't entertaining those guys in the top three. Um, Dominguez, obviously, is a different kind of animal, but Schmidt and Garcia uh, provided upper-level success, polish, things like that. Whereas Gil, Peraza, Volpe, Medina, Roancy, Vizcaino, uh, that's Roancy Contreras, Alexander Vizcaino, all are still in A-ball or below. 
Albert Abreu's in double-A, but there's also concerns about whether he's a starter or a reliever, and he's got some injury track record on him, too. And I think he's uh, leaning more toward the bullpen than he is as a starting rotation guy. Oswald Peraza was one of the more interesting names here on the top 10 list, checking in at number five. The numbers don't pop out. They were solid, but it was an abbreviated season. Only played 46 games at Charleston, 19 games at Staten Island. Again, numbers were okay. Hit for some average, got on base, not a lot of power, a little bit of speed, but nothing that really jumped out. What was it in your discussions with evaluators that provided some bullishness to run Peraza up all the way to number five in this system? Well, they've loved him, and outside evaluators have too, since last year's top 30. Um, you know, he started the season as 18 as well. And the fact that they moved him off of Staten Island after just 19 games and moved him to Charleston really tells me that they believe in this guy, that they believe that this guy is the plus hitter that outside evaluators think he is, that he has the mix of offensive and defensive gifts to kind of be head up over some of those uh, other Latin American guys in their system the way they've moved him really tells me they think highly of him. He's got all sorts of potential going forth, and I decided I would stick my neck out for him because they've moved him so quickly, and I've kind of took that as a, a tip of their hand as to what they believe this guy's capable of. I don't think they would have moved him off of Staten Island uh, or you know, so quickly if they didn't believe in this guy's future. With that, Anthony Volpe, their first-round pick this year, number 30 overall, checked in right behind him. How much of a debate was there between Peraza and Volpe for that number five spot? Not much of one. I mean, the problem with Volpe is you didn't get to see the complete picture in um, pro ball. He contracted mononucleosis at some point and missed most of the year at Pulaski. So it was hard for evaluators in pro ball to really – a, know when he had mono, and B, see him when he was out and sent back to, you know, to do his rehab. Um, he was, you know, a, a, a lauded amateur, a, a celebrated amateur, but there was just so many question marks surrounding whether or not uh, what you saw was what you really will get with him once he got to Pulaski. So, you know, you put him up there because he's their first round pick and because you believe in the amateur record, but the pro picture was really cloudy. You alluded earlier to the four pitchers who spent the bulk of last season at low class A Charleston and how sussing them out was one of the more interesting challenges of putting together Yankees top 10. You uh, had a separate piece about it as well. What ended up being the separator for Luis Gill to be the highest ranked of these four? And then how did you kind of line up the rest as you did? All right, Luis Gill, Luis Heal, has a has a high ceiling. He's also got an extremely uh, high end fastball that he produces really easily. It's you know 98 to 102 with you know uh, an arm action that belies that kind of velocity. The off speed pitches have to come a little bit, but you know you've got the body, you've got the easy velocity, you've got the clean arm action. There's all the traits of a power mid rotation starter there. Him, but there are obviously red flags. You need the, the breaking ball to come a little farther, the change to come a little bit farther. But I liked the mix of ease of operation, fastball velocity, size, strength, all those things put together made me think he was the, I don't even like to use the word, safest uh, of, the, of the group you had there. 
Uh, Medina next has the highest ceiling in the organization, but he only really started after his 11 start stretch, started putting it together and showing you what exactly he could do. In that 11 start stretch or eight start stretch or whatever it was, uh, he was you know exactly what they thought he would be—a guy who could strike just about anybody on the planet out. And he he cut his walks drastically. His strike percentage went up, and the stuff didn't suffer. Uh, below him was Roanthe Contreras, who didn't really have a whole lot of red flags, but he didn't have a whole lot of green flags either. Um, he's got he's he's, po- he's more polished than the other three guys on this list. None of his stuff really jumps out. He's not a particularly big guy either, but he's just solid. Of the of the four guys in that group, his floor I think is the highest, and the likelihood of him reaching that floor. And then Vizcaino was more of a pop up guy from last year. He had a little bit of an elbow surgery on him, not a Tommy John, but an elbow surgery to to clean up uh, I want to say bone chips or something in him or on him. And he came back this year throwing a much improved changeup and you know dialing up high end. Uh, uh, velocity with his fastball so he's there kind of as a as a wild card that popped up out of nowhere and I, that's how i separated those four i mean i went back and forth back and forth back and forth back and forth on these guys and i wound up with almost the exact opposite uh order that we had on our south atlantic league top 20 uh but i got a you know a text from a scout shortly after this list released saying you know i agree with the order you put them in like, okay fun validation Although, as I noted in that piece, there are mathematically 24 different iterations of this list, and I feel if I pulled 24 scouts, I would get all 24 of them. Obviously, they all have different strengths and weaknesses. I want to dial in on Luis Medina a little bit because the stuff, as you mentioned, is pretty crazy. Fastball sits 98, touches 101. Oh, by the way, with life, uh, he's got a a breaking ball that sometimes looks like a curveball, sometimes that looks like a slider, but... Either way, it's swung and missed at nearly half the time he throws it. Changeup will show you uh, plus at its best and uh, above average overall. I mean, it's two ridiculous pitches, a third one that's pretty good, but he's just very, very, very wild. You mentioned he had that good 7-8 start stretch, but it takes more than 7 or 8 good starts to show you can really hold up over the course of a long season. He made 22 starts this year if 7 or 8 of them were what you wanted to see that also leaves 14 or 15 that were not what you wanted to see. How much faith and confidence is there that Luis Medina will be a guy who can ever put together 20, 25, 30 good starts as opposed to just 7 or 8? I don't think the confidence level is extremely high, but you bet on that kind of ceiling every day of the week and twice on Sunday. I, I mean, if you've listened to this podcast, you know me at all. You know I covered the Trenton Thunder during the, the late aughts, early tens. So I lived through Dellen Batances' development. Now, granted, these are two different bodies, obviously, but he exactly is, is the Batances is the, the kind of guy, the perfect example of a guy who you will continue to give chances because in between or in during the course of disaster outings, you will see flashes of dominance. And you just don't want that. You, you don't want another organization to get that guy and unlock it and leave yourself kicking yourself. Uh, J.J. Cooper and the rest of us put together a, a 40-man preview that should be on the site right now. Definitely be on the site right now because this is uh, coming out in a couple days. But... I would expect Luis Medina would be protected on the 40-man roster. I wouldn't expect to see him in the big leagues this year, 
but if he were available to the Rule 5, he'd be taken, no question. And he, uh, a, a club that knows it's not going to contend would gladly keep him in the uh, in their bullpen for the 162 games uh, if that means they get to send a guy with his right arm back to the minor leagues for, you know, in 2021. Be very, very interesting to see whether or not the development continues because you're right, there's a tremendous amount of talent there. The arm strength is something special, but obviously there's a long list of guys who have had great arm strength and never threw enough strikes to stay in the majors. Other guys who have figured it out just enough. And I think it'll be very, very interesting to see which way he goes in particular. With, with Medina, one more thing. I mean, it's not injury. It's not a wandering arm action, more or less. I mean, there's, there's a little bit of it that comes there from just being so young. It's mental. It's absolutely uh, a guy who, when something goes wrong, it starts to snowball. I've seen it in person multiple times. You see, I mean, I saw the game this year where you know, he gave up a home run and then the guy pimped it. And you could see him just go to pieces on the mound. They just lose it, and then it snowballs from there. Or there was even before that, there was a play where he sets a ground ball to the mound, and he just failed to make the play, and then it just snowballed into a bad inning. So it's not uh, a lack of stuff at all. If you watched him once, you know it's not a lack of stuff. It's uh, the mental acuity, this the confidence that really um, isn't always there. And he spent all this year at age 20. He'll be 21 during next season. So we'll see if that maturity can come because, again, poise is another thing. We talk so much about raw stuff, but without poise, without the ability to keep your composure, keep that slow heartbeat, the game will speed up on you really fast. So it'll be interesting to see if that maturity can come as well as the control. Uh, moving at the back of the list, Albert Abreu, who's been in the system for a couple of years now, was acquired from the Astros in the Brian McCann trade. Various points has been higher on this list. He's struggled with injuries. What, for you, keeps him on this list, just given all the health concerns he's had? And were there any other candidates that were really pushing for this last spot in the top 10? Um, I kept Abreu there because, again, he's got couple pitches that are double plus if not double plus it's a thing it, it's with him i think he his potential can be unlocked with very small mechanical tweaks i talked they did a piece on this this year with a scout who you know broke it broke it down pretty well and said you know a lot of it has to do with the way he lands if he lands too early his arm gets caught behind and the quality of his stuff decreases so if he can fix that you can start to see the monster that he might become. I don't know if that's necessarily in the rotation, but in this in today's game, if you have a guy who's a dominant wipeout reliever, and he certainly has the stuff and the body to do that, that's still a very valuable piece. That's you know, that's that's one inning of dominance that might be an opener in other systems. Um, that's a guy who can you're, you can trust to take the ball and shove for three six outs or whatever you need um, behind him. There's a guy named Miguel Yahure who started making noise um, toward the end of the season. When you saw him early in the season, he was like 86, 90 mi- 86 to 90 miles an hour. He was working his way back from, from injury. Um, and by the end, he was low 90s, touched four or five, maybe uh, you've heard seven some places, um, with a really nice curveball, a nice changeup, and an idea of how to pitch. And he was really in close competition for that um, that tenth spot. He did well in his time with Trenton this year at the very end and in the playoffs. And then right behind him was Yoendris Gomez, uh, a right-hander in that organization 
who's one of my favorites personally. I love the mix of present stuff, mound present, projection, and ease of operation. I saw him a couple years ago on the backfields, and you, it's 10 a.m., it's an intra-squad game, and then you see what comes out of his right arm and how easy it does, it happens, and you you kind of oh, blink a little bit and say, did I see what I think I just saw? I, I, this is exactly why you get up at 8 in the morning and go wander over to a field. It's it's a power pitcher's build. There's probably room for 30-ish more pounds on his frame, and with that, you would expect more velocity to come. He's got feel for his off-speed pitches at a young age, and they moved him to Charleston pretty quickly out of Pulaski, too. They skipped him over short season, and he has the potential, if he takes the steps they expect him to take this year, to really move through this system really quick and become a household name. The point of a farm system is to help the major league team. We saw the Yankees need starting pitching help throughout this season. Uh, Domingo Herman was the only starter they had uh, under the age of 30, along with Luis Severino, who missed a lot of the year with injury. When you look at this system, a lot of these guys, there's reliever questions. Some of them have injury questions. How much faith do you have that the starting pitching help the Yankees will need in 2020, 2021, 2022 will come from this group? Or are they going to have to start moving these guys in trades? I mean, I think you can answer that question with yes. Um, I assume that there's, what, one, two, three, four, five, six right-handers, six right-handed pitchers on that top ten, and there's plenty more. I mentioned Yohure and I mentioned Gomez. Um, They're not all going to be Yankees. They're going to be dealt at some point um, for, for pitching help or some kind of help otherwise. That is, like you said, like we've said, the purpose of a farm system. There are also um, a notable, a couple of notable guys on the free agent market right now who I'm sure Yankees fans would love to see uh, in pinstripes next year and for the next five, six years or whatever. But in terms of guys who are going to help in the next couple of years, like obviously Schmidt and Garcia are the two um, in the next few years. Beyond that, it really is a bit of a crapshoot. Um, those four guys I lined up at, at uh, Charleston, they all, like I said, have some kind of red flags. Um, and it's going to take a long time, a long time, two, three years, one, two, three years for them to, you know, fully show which ones are the ones that you want to keep. Right now, they're all just interesting and they're they're more interesting than some of their counterparts. Um, but there's a number of ways that this could go. I fully expect the Yankees, given their uh, financial um, might to to kind of exercise all avenues in order to put together what they believe is the best major league team they can. And there is a path for them to do some things with the guys they already have. We mentioned Luis Severino coming off of injury, Jordan Montgomery coming off of injury, Michael King, who was in the top 10 of this system a year ago, missed a lot of this season with injury as well through only 46 innings, but he's still around and did make his major league debut. So there are arms you can project out four or five years from now. And again, you know, Masahiro Tanaka and James Paxton, they were only 30 this past season. They can still be projected to be helpful next few years. Do you think that when we look back in 2023, 2024, it will be mostly those older guys? Or do you expect any of these pitching prospects to really make an impact as a Yankee? I mean, historically, they, they, they go and get their pitching outside. Uh, you mentioned Luis Severino. Obviously, that's one exception in the last couple of years. Um, 
uh, Jordan Montgomery's another, but Domingo Herman was a trade piece. Masahiro Tanaka was a free agent signing. Um, Jay Happ was a free agent signing. James, we said James Paxton was a trade piece. Um, all those guys were, were brought in. Most of those guys were brought in from the outside. I, th- I wouldn't be surprised if that's continued to, if, they, if that's the way they continue to go. Uh, like I said, I think if you are honest with the Yankees fans, they would prefer to have Steven Strasburg or Garrett Cole in their rotation from now till, let's say, 2026. Rightfully over so. Some, over some of these guys. And I, I think that's just the way they operate. Again, let's let's go back to the idea that they're going to start developing pitching a little differently than they have been in the past. And maybe that makes a difference in how many of these guys get to the major leagues. But, I mean, if you're asking me to, to say how they look in 2023, I wouldn't be surprised if their rotation is not mostly homegrown. I do want to hit on a couple of guys who have been at the top of this system in past years but have fallen off. Key among them is Estevan Florial. Uh, at one point, he was the number one prospect in this system. He's now no longer in the top 10. He's really, really struggled with injuries. What was what was the feedback on him this year, and where does he stand right now? They still believe in his tools, but he hasn't been healthy. He has not been healthy to correct the red flags he had, uh, specifically uh, commanding the strike zone um, with his weight. He, he has a tremendous amount of in-zone swing and miss, and that's a problem. It's not necessarily that he chases, he just doesn't hit the balls that he should. He's still got the bat speed, he's still got the ability to play center field, he's still got the foot speed, but he just has not had the development time to get to where he needs to be to make the developmental strides to get him on the pathway to New York. It's just, it's unfortunate. He's, by all accounts, a wonderful young man, but two years missed or most of two years missed with broken hand wrist things um, will really sap anyone's development time. Played only 84 games in 2018, 74 games in 2019. Still has yet to advance past high class A Tampa, which is a level he first reached in 2016. So you mentioned the injuries have really taken away his ability to, to take that next step. Josh, just to kind of wrap up overall, you mentioned the Yankee system, kind of high variance, a lot of guys who show you a lot of tantalizing ability but are also in the Class A levels or below, and there's also a scenario where a lot of them don't develop or go backward. On the whole, though, given the group the Yankees have brought to the major leagues, the financial might they have, this does not by any means feel like an organization whose clock is ticking. Uh, there's a lot of talent they have in the major leagues that will give these young players time to kind of figure it out. And by the time they actually need them, it, it's not like that time is coming right away. They, they have the ability to give these young players time to develop. And if they don't develop, it's not going to crush the franchise. No, it's, it's not. They do have young guys at the, in the major leagues, Claver Torres, uh, we'll see what happens with Miguel Tor- uh, Miguel Andahar when he comes back, if he's the same guy he was two years ago or uh, in 2018. Gio Urshela came out of nowhere. Uh, Mike Talkman came out of nowhere. Those are guys who are five and six on baseball reference war for the Yankees this year. Um, Aaron Judge is pretty good. They've got uh, Giancarlo Stanton, who, again, hamstrung with injuries all year. Gary Sanchez. They've still got that enviable young core this year. And it's a wonder that they won 103 games this year with most of that young core uh, outside of Gleyber Torres missing a good chunk of the year with injuries. That they didn't, you know, fall off the off the, the map in the division 
is it's a small miracle <laughs> given how much time all those guys missed. And that's saying nothing even of Luis Severino and Dellen Batances and CeCe Zabathia. Those guys missed chunks of the year and they stayed afloat. So you've got a system that could help a little further and you've got a young core at the top. Uh, they need some more rotation help, I think. But there's, there's certainly not a reason to panic if you're a Yankees fan. Absolutely not. You talked about their ability to find guys, Gio Rochelle and Mike Talkman. They acquired Luke Voigt last year, and he's been great when healthy as well. So the Yankees have shown over and over and over again they have the ability to find players that can help them through a number of avenues, trade, waiver wire pickups, uh, guys who are not considered to be huge impact players in other systems, find a new level of uh, stardom with the Yankees, it seems, and that's a testament to their player development, their management, and their scouting. They've done nothing short of spinning straw into gold. It's... I, I, just thinking about turning a guy like Urshela and a guy like Talkman, and you mentioned a guy like Voight, into usable pieces, not just usable pieces, but really good pieces, that's, that's a testament to their pro scouting department, that's a testament to their analytics department, that's a testament to the coaches they have in the major leagues. They did a really good job taking cast-offs and turning them into borderline all-stars. With that... Now I'm going to put you on the spot, Josh. This decade, the 2010s, was the first decade the Yankees did not win a World Series since the 1910s. Is a World Series victory in their future in the 2020s? You know, I'd like to have a positive Twitter uh, inbox, so I'm going to say yes. <laughs> it certainly seems like they have the pieces there. They have the management and player development apparatus there. And now they just got to play the games. But the Yankees are certainly in good shape. There's some talent coming in the farm system. And... We'll see if it develops and helps out the major league level. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insight as always. All right. We'll see you for White Sox, Cubs, and I think at this point, Giants. All sorts of podcasts coming up here at Baseball America. Thank you again for listening, everyone. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitch, or whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Josh Norris, I'm Kyle Glazer. This has been another Baseball America podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Mm 